Too full. 
and it is coming up on on 426 and that means that it's time for me to be wrapping up the last set i have for you today contained the following long side of the santa fe trail by jules allen then the Patna gal from traffic featuring sean caruth chorus by erasure things could be better by enrier and the top notes featuring raymond winfield and that set started off with Josh Tan by Fundamental. Please stay tuned for the Living Writer Show, which will start at 4.30. You have been listening to Freeform with DJ Electronica. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this music as much as I have enjoyed playing it for you today. Well, I'll have enough time to leave you with one last song. This is a fast-acting tune called Dreamland by New Energy. Everyone, have a good day, and I'll see you next week. Enjoy.
I don't want no aggravation When my train has left the station If you're there or not, I may not even know Have a round and remember things we did that weren't so tender Let the train blow the whistle when I go On my old guitar cell tickets Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. My name is T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, C.D. Wright. C.D., thanks for coming. Thanks. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I w- I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled and delighted and all, <laughs> all that <laughs> jazz. Uh, this, this conversation is pre-taped, um, so uh, anyway, we're coming at you, but not live this time, but the next best thing, right, CD? That's right. <laughs> uh, and before, before we go any further, I'm going to read a brief bio to, to kick off here. CD Wright lives outside of Providence. She has published a dozen collections of poetry, most recently, Rising, Falling, Hovering, and Like Something Flying Backwards, new and selected poems. Rising, Falling, and Hovering is new from Copper Canyon Press, and Like Something Flying Backwards, new and selected poems is out in Britain with Blood Axe. She's married to poet Forrest Gander. Both are on the faculty at Brown University. They have a son, Brecht. And Breck just called, actually. Oh, Breck just, a moment just ago. called. <laughs> he was trying to get in on the radio. Gig. I've never gotten past the point of not being afraid not to answer a call from Breck, because I never know what he's, you know, bail me out, Mom. You know? <laughs> so. Well, certainly in the new book, in Rising, Falling, Hovering, there's many a time where I just think, oh, good Lord, because, you know, you, you said he joins a, a fight club, uh, like an underground fight club. He's an edgy boy. <laughs> I wonder why. Yeah, I don't know. Where did that come I don't, from? I don't know if Forrest and I take turns blaming each other, but he's uh, but he's fine. He's he's a junior at Skidmore, and he's just edgy. Mm-hmm. You know. well, and, and now you know he can protect himself. That's right. <laughs> when he's cornered in an alley, or you know, there was a litany of moments that he he listed off to you at one point, right? The reasons That's true. to take. Yeah, them. Uh, we thought he was going to drop out of school and join Cirque du Soleil about two <laughs> months ago, and and then he went back to school, and once again we started inhaling and exhaling on a more regular, on a regular pattern. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's good. Circus Soleil. I mean, maybe that's af- it's a little like after graduation. We just like to get that tree off the road first, you know. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> get that tree off the road. Well, um, well, CD. But to to sort of kick us off, I was I've been reading your your book, Cooling Time, an American Poetry Vigil, which was a a great experience because I almost felt like I was having. Um, like a, a a pre-conversation before this one mm-hmm. with you, okay. um, so so hopefully you remember everything you said in cooling time, <laughs> as if it were no, yesterday. I'll probably contradict everything I said in there now, but and you even actually there's um, a, a a footnote where you say, well, by this point I find myself agreeing more with. Silman about many things so perhaps he's changed his opinions on this as well like you Uh do footnote uh it Um, but this was this is a wonderful book which uh, now I feel like much loved and and how you begin it is uh, is an op-ed where but it seems like a manifesto of sorts it is sort of yeah I'll stand by that passage you will yeah (laughs) (laughs) maybe we'll read some of it later and we'll hear um 
Is it true you'll read us a few poems from Rising, Falling, sure. and Hovering later sure, sure. as well? Will that be the debut? Or of reading from it? I just read from it in Ireland. So it, You know, you've been traveling. I've uh, been traveling. So, so it'll be the United States debut. That's right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Living writers. <laughs> yeah, I just I just got this first copy, and they they had copies there. I was pleased, so they've been drop shipping them from the printers, I guess. Over to, and and so you were in in Ireland. Was that for a festival or? It was a festival. It was they were mostly Irish poets. There were a number of English poets. They weren't English born poets. There was an Iranian. There was a Hungarian. There was an Indian. All of whom live in England, and the others were Irish except for there were three, four Americans. It sounds like it, that sounds like an international festival of poetry because you, you were also in Libya and you thought that was going to be... <laughs> I thought that was going to be international, but that was four American poets and 40 Libyan poets. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's nice to bring the international flavor of America to Libya in a yeah. non-bombing format. That's yes. <laughs> yes, we weren't there to carpet bomb. We were just visiting. That was interesting. And so you really you're you're on is that is that a typical sort of cuz I was surprised. I was thinking you had um the the only trip that you would have before the Ann Arbor trip mm-hmm. was Libya and, and in the last a few years I've been traveling s- somewhat intensively. Um, why why is that? Is I think um one I forget how far in advance I've said you know yes to something and then by the time it creeps up on me I've said yes to more things than I can really manage. And um it just maybe my profile has changed somewhat and I've been invited to more international affairs. Um, so profile, does well, that mean how I mean, the world sees you? Well, I mean, in recent years, I think my work, um, most of my travel was domestic, and my audience was pretty much exclusively domestic. In the last four or five years, I've been traveling to other countries, and I it may have been accelerated a little bit by the Blood Axe book. Um, it may have just been time. Like the natural rhythm thing, of things started, the writing started traveling more. And does that mean that you will be, will you be working in collaboration with any artists in other countries that would be translating your works? Is that they do you for any kind of uh, at festival? There's some translation that goes on, and then usually there's some publication that goes with the translation, and then sometimes depends upon the the writers that you meet and the kind of um, conversations you have there. Other kinds of work gets translated. But it's not as if someone has sort of, um, like there hasn't been a relationship that started where it may be a, a poet and, well, for example, Libya approached you and said, well, we could work in... No, that ha- I mean, with Mexico, it's more like that because I know more Mexican writers, and so there is more of a relationship there, um, and more translation. So, so that would be okay. Well, that's because it seems like you you uh, for your your working life in poetry, it, mm-hmm. it seems like you um, collaboration has been. Uh, 
definitely a big component um, with, with Deborah Lester. That I mostly collaborate with Deborah Lester, ph- the photographer. photographer. Yes. Right. I mean, I also, I generally use um, a photograph on my cover, and I generally work with a photographer I know for a cover. And that's either Deborah Lester or Denny Moores, who's a Providence photographer. And also this painter. Because I was wondering the, at first if these were your, your paintings. Yeah, the painter was... Uh, um, On cooling time, I should tell the listeners. Right, Douglas <laughs> Humble, who works at uh, Marfa, Texas, for the Landon Foundation. But most of the time it's a photographer. And, and is that... Well, in, in cooling time, uh, why is that? Why, why, why do you work with a photographer, the still pictures? Um... No, I think our heads just crack along the same lines. Uh, we've been working together for about 12 years at least, and we've done a n- number of small projects, and we've done a few large-scale projects. Um, the last big project we did was Prison Project. One Big on Self. One Big Self, um, where she was photographing at three prisons in Louisiana, and I started visiting the prisons with her when I could. She was living, she lives in Louisiana, so she was visiting the prisons regularly for a year and a half. And That's a long time, isn't it, to be uh, su- su- sort a, of submerged in that, that? It was a very big project. I mean, she photographed about 1,500 inmates, and that means she's taking probably at least, you know, 36 images of each inmate. Um, and she was using, um, you know, a, 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 um, antique, you know, technology, and she was mm. printing them on aluminum, gesso-treated, or not gesso, but some kind of light-sensitive co- coating on the aluminum. There's and so much depth in, in that way of producing, because the layers are almost even maybe subconsciously visible to us, whereas in digital photography it doesn't... They're very rich. It. They're really rich. But that was a big project. And now we're, we'll are we'll be starting a new project pretty soon. And in the meantime, I've been working on another project, and I got her involved, but in a kind of modest way. I'm probably just going to use one image, but I'm probably going to have her manipulate that image so that I use it, you know, re- Repeatedly throughout the text. Oh, so that so that's a book length project mm-hmm. that you're thinking of right. doing. Mm-hmm. And and what was the other project that you mentioned? The one that we haven't done. <laughs> uh, yeah, is that <laughs> we a haven't trip? even really articulated it yet. We've made a few little forays, but it's not far enough along to you know. It would disintegrate as soon as I started talking about it. Oh, okay. Get this right. look at, the, at this stage. Yeah, yeah. don't. Yeah, it wouldn't hold together. <laughs> like the mirage on the road. Just yeah, that's like, right. Let it be there. Don't that's right. <laughs> talk about it. Okay. Well, maybe another time. Maybe if we if we have another conversation, okay. maybe it'll be. Because um, yeah, I had to laugh when um, I saw that you both even you and Deborah, you've had such a, a long. Uh, a relationship you both even took mime together <laughs> or did you just throw that in to be no, like no we did we are took you mime attention? together for a long time uh, we've done we've done a lot of things together a lot of you know and road trips uh, road trips uh, for one fantastic road trip through north south carolina and northern georgia visiting outsider artists um, so that was project based is that something that when you that you had this idea of what the what you wanted from the work or like an inkling of it and then you put the framework of this trip onto it she had an inkling and she had a kind of um 
her idea, this was a book that became Deep Step Come Shining. Um, she never developed her images from that suggested um, inkling <laughs> or that trip. Um, That's strange, isn't it? But, uh, but I ha- had a very serendipitous manuscript from that that trip and I used a photograph of hers from another project we did together on the cover of that book. Yeah, that is a haunting image actually. That, it's, it gets uh, sort of imprinted upon the mind. All right, that's the woman wearing a necklace of dead hummingbirds. It does stick with you. <laughs> 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 yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> I know sometimes I do wish we had some visuals we could beam out to everyone, but then again, it wouldn't be the magic of radio that we're creating here with our voices. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, um, let's take CD. Let's take a short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to Living Writers and today on the program CD Write. Beast in me is caged by frail and fragile bars, restless by day and by night, rants and rages at the stars. God help. The beast in me The beast in me Has had to learn To live with pain And how to shelter From the rain And in the twinkling of an eye Might have to be restrained God help the beast in me Sometimes it tries to kid me That it's just a teddy bear And even somehow manage To vanish in the air And that is when I must beware Of the beast in me That everybody They've seen him out dressed in my clothes Patently unclear If it's New York or New Year God help Welcome back. If you're just joining us, tuning in, C.D. Wright on Living Writers. Thanks for being here, C.D. Thank you. It's so... It's great to beam across our table at you (laughs) 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 with our uh, directional mics. Okay, well, um, as sort of a a biography-related question, um, 
I was wondering, you, when you wrote about how when you were when you were starting out, when you were in school, you're uh, a young poet or you know, a young woman. You you wanted to. You knew you wanted something. You knew you wanted to be an American artist. Mm-hmm. That's pretty. I know that's so general, but that is what I. That was my yearning, you know. I want to be an artist. I don't know what kind of artist. (laughs) Yeah, how did that come? Do you think, is that, like, natural then? Like, there's people who have that urge. Is it an urge to create? I guess I wanted to make up my own destiny, and everything else seemed so dreary by comparison. (laughs) So I went to law school, and I thought, I was right. It's dreary. Well, because your father was the judge, <laughs> right? So was that a natural... My father was a judge and my mother was a court, court. reporter. <laughs> uh, but my dad said, you're going to hate it. So I said, I'm going to law school. So I went to law school and I said, I hate it. And he's like, <laughs> oh, do you? You're going to hate it. <laughs> so the judge I, right again. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, How long did you stick it out there before you were you thought, well, I don't need to... He was I went right. for a semester. Hmm. And I had tried a number of things. I I mean, I grew up in such a small town. There were so few resources in terms of what your options might be. It never really occurred to me that I actually could write. Um, I've never had access to anything like painting or photography. Um, I took French from a French war bride. So I had a little taste of of that, of something other. We. Oui. <laughs> but um, so all the way through college, I sort of flailed along still thinking, what am I going to do? What's what's you know, what's going to be my what's going to be my shtick? What's going to be my, fo- you know, what's my calling? Um, Were you reading a lot? Was I, it read like t- I read my whole life. I just mm-hmm. ate books. And so it seemed inevitable that it would have to do with words. Mm-hmm. But I think I was really quite terrified of that prospect. Um, I mean, you know, my father said, you'll eat paper. But it wasn't that I was afraid of uh, poverty. It just didn't occur to me that that was a to be a concern at that time. I mean, my generation, we sort of thought everything was going to be all right anyway. Um, it was, I, I was afraid of the commitment. I was afraid of the, my own ignorance. The, the commitment to writing? To writing, so, yes. So you, did, so you did start thinking that it could be I started writing. thinking in it, and the more I thought of it, the more I tried to avoid it. Um, and it was after it was really clear that it was not going to be a mime and I was not going to be a saxophonist. <laughs> and I had never held a paintbrush. Uh, and I didn't know how to make movies. That um, I did have these tools that were readily available to me. That And I had always been completely besotted with language. That maybe that was really what I should gravitate toward. So how did you... Uh, make that leap into the commitment if it was something you could palpably tell you were avoiding at some or or looking th- back you can tell well after after I quit law school um, I started scribbling a bit and I think someone suggested I you know find my way into some kind of writing program where there were other people also scribbling a bit um, and that's what I did and then as that was the main thing that going to a writing program did for me was it sort of got me across that bridge. 
of, you know, what am I going to do? This is what I'm going to do. And, and seeing people that were using their lives completely to, to, to scribble a little bit. But so in big, seeing people that ways. were less fearful than I, who thought, you know, thought that was going to be what they were going to do also. And I also met a poet whose writing was very powerful. Um, he had already dropped out of college, but his writing was very powerful and it was very persuasive for me. And that was, is that when um, the lexicon of language, where you felt the possibilities of, uh, okay, Le- uh, this is a quote from your book, Cooling Time, Time, lexicon known to the marrow of my bones. Is mm-hmm. that what you're referring to, CD? With uh, it must be. I don't. Uh, I mean, <laughs> is that it sounds like page seventy-two. Right, page seventy-two. Yes, I met this poet Frank Stanford, who had uh, grown up in um, Memphis and then in the Arkansas Ozarks. Um, and he, t- yeah, he had that language down. He knew the idiom. He knew. Uh, both the idiom of the Delta and of the Ozarks, um, his language was almost exhaustive. And, exhaustive. Uh, and he knew how to shape um, that language into bona fide poems. It was thrilling for me. And he was my age. Um, so that really peeled my eyes. Because what kind of work, what were you writing at that time? Were you um, the cooling? unintelligible gibberish mostly? <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean it was a thicket of words, but it had no shape to it. And and did you feel like the the language you were using was language that had been already a, a part of like your a daily language, but more powerful, not in a a, a simplistic way, but or were you writing to the the way people were that you thought you ought to write was that well it was um you know it was um everything was thrown into the pot you know it was based on reading a lot of yates and reading a lot of dylan thomas and um reading you know modern modern english poets you know turn of the century poets taking um elliot pound seminar and then coming hard up against poetry of frank stanford and realizing, oh, probably it's more appropriate <laughs> to work in the language of your own time and locale than it is to continue to, you know, the East, Euro- the the European tradition, you know, one inch. Yeah, isn't uh, that an so, amazing epiphany, though? Yes, it was useful. It was bracing, but it was useful. And how did you come upon it? Because if he had already dropped out of the of the program, was it just a, a community? So you just happened upon each well, other. Well, he had or? already dropped out, but he was already a you know young legend, and and, uh, and he showed up at a party, um, and that was that. Yeah. I see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Lexicon known to the marrow of my bones. I thought that just was was great. Um, C.D., will you read us a poem from Rising, Falling, Hovering? No? Would sure. That, that would okay. be. Like hearing your name called in a language you don't understand. Since the day the bell was cast, I have sat in the bishop's carved chair and waited my turn with my feet crossed at the ankles and the leather of my huaraches cutting into the hide of my foot. From where I was sitting, I watched the light being drawn off the magnolias in the Plaza de Armas, while the voices of the others choired in evening. 
I have risen to the lectern when the eyes of the host summoned. I face the great open doors as the faces of strangers acknowledge their own losses. I saw the white trousers of the vendor flapping in the dust, his body engulfed in balloons, the children selling chiclets dispersed, the shoeshine boy putting away his brushes, the sum of his inheritance. I have read what was written there, said Gracias, and sat down again. I have climbed the pyramidal steps and felt winded and humbled. I have stood small in Boracha and been glad of not being thrown down the barranca alongside the pariah consul of the celebrated book. In every sense, I have felt lonelier than a clod of clay, a whip, a bolsa, a skull of chocolate. I have been lured by the host pellucid face in the blue salvia where the rooster is buried. Though I have worn the medal of the old town with forlorn pleasure, I say unto you, comrades, be not in mourning for your being. To express happiness and expel scorpions is the best job on earth. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I love that, that to, to um, the, 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 the happiness and uh, expel scorpions, the <laughs> best job on earth. That's that's one of the ones I I scribbled down in my notebook actually, as I was as I was reading last night. And also, I have stood small in Baracha and been glad. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Um, and and so with the the structure of this book CD, um, how you you start it with like a, a few poems that sort of almost preface. They come before even the title. Mm-hmm. page seemingly mm-hmm. um and then they come later on within the book the like the the same title too mm-hmm. is there um is there a reason for that setup i mean obviously there is but is mm-hmm. there one that's interesting to to talk about oh, well let's see if i can make it interesting <laughs> i've always been interested in the compositional whole of a book um, and this book had a very long poem, a 45-page poem. And I didn't want to front-load it, and I didn't want to just put it at the end, and I didn't want to just stick it in the middle. So I split <laughs> it in half, <laughs> which actually followed the composition of the poem. I mean, there, I wrote the first half of it, and then I wrote other poems, and then eventually I wrote another half of it. Um, so organic then, really. So in a well, in a fa- in a way, it was, and uh, and so then I, I don't know how I worked out the arrangement of the other poems, but I wanted them threaded through it, um, and there were a couple of companion poems in there. There was a poem called um, "Like a Light at Your Back, You Can't See But You Can Still Feel," and another one called "Prisoner of Soft Words." I wrote two versions of each. I, I just enjoyed doing that. And, and that, I, oh, they seem to create kind of um, counteracts to one another and also establish some kind of dialogue with the rest of the book. And the one, the, the prisoner of soft, to soft, of soft words? Yes. I believe, if I'm remembering this correctly, that's the one where many of the lines are almost exactly the... The, there's many sim- of the same lines. Right. And there'll be lines that are completely de- that change the whole. Yes, in both in both of those um, two pairs of poems, they start the 
at least the first half of the poems are identical, and then they veer off in different directions. It was just trying to see where something would take you. Uh, it was a simple experiment. Mm. I thought it worked out all right, but I didn't want to do a whole book of those. I thought that would be <laughs> tedious. <laughs> I, I say do what you want. That's right. <laughs> you will anyway. <laughs> That's right. I mean, why else get involved in this whole enterprise, you know? <laughs> sort of the liberating quality of it is at least half of the joy of it. Yes, and, and to see what, what can possibly come next. And it is interesting to look at the, the pieces because you're saying also that um, – by making these very slight changes, it goes, it, and, it, and it's true. I can, I can vouch for it, having read it. It goes off the <laughs> rails does. as soon as you, t- you t- yeah, you just take a little spur, and then suddenly you're in a different world. And, it, and it's not as if you even, as a, as a reader, knew you were on the rails until you were off again. Because <laughs> you'd be right. Because you're almost convinced of the life of the first poem, which you've come to earlier, mm-hmm. and then you come to this um, later on, and it's sort of, it is, it's, it's almost like when you read um, the Lawrence Durrell's quartet and you think you have the story of Justine and you know exactly what happened and then you get to the next novel and then you find out that's not at all what happened. That's right. <laughs> In the same time frame. Well. That, was part of the, that was part of why that was such a good reading experience. It's because your own expectations were sabotaged instead of fulfilled. Sabotage. <laughs> You're listening to Living Writers and CD Write. We'll be right back. Well, I got a friend named Whiskey Sam He was my boonie rat buddy for a year and now He said, I think my country got a little off track Took him 25 years to welcome me back But it's better than not coming back at all Many a good man I saw fall And even now, every time I dream I hear the men and the monkeys in the jungle scream Drive on it don't mean nothing my children love me but they don't understand and i got a woman who knows her man drive on it don't mean nothing it don't mean nothing drive on well i remember one night texting me rappled in on a hot lz we had a 16s on rock and roll and with all of that fire i was scared and cold I was crazy and I was wild And I have seen the tiger smile I spit in a bamboo viper's face And I'd be dead but by God's grace drive on It don't mean nothing My children love me but they don't understand And I got a woman who knows her man Drive on It don't mean nothing It don't mean nothing Drive on It was a slow walk in a sad rain And nobody tried to be John Wayne I came home but Tex did not And I can't talk about the hit he got But I got a little limp now when I walk And I got a little tremolo when I talk 
Well, thanks to Johnny Cash for doing our musical interludes. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you're listening to Living Writers, and today's CD, Right, is here. We, we just heard a poem from Rising, Falling, and Hovering, her latest book from Copper Canyon Press, out soon, right? CD one. When, when it's it basically be? out. It's just make. It's just well. It's in being Ireland. Out. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, it's out in Ireland. It's just moving out of the you know from the printers into the distributors' hands and from distributors to wherever. So any moment now. Okay, and um, and while I'm on this, thanks to Jesse Johnston for for engineering. Hats off to Jesse. Um, all right, so. <laughs> I thought I'm going to ask CD about this <laughs> and, and she's going to say I am sick to death of talking about this so there's a nice preface right are you yeah, I'm really you, looking forward to this, <laughs> this question just, <laughs> it just keeps getting better and better right. this half of the program is going to be <laughs> I think I just told CD on the in the break oh we'll make this a, this will be the, the fun half we'll we'll talk yeah. about more about mime (laughs) but first the miserable question (laughs) no actually I I feel like from reading um, that a lot of times you're called upon to to be a spokesperson for form or structure to Mm -hmm. kind of constantly be giving um, maybe even updated versions of how you but maybe because and I was wondering is it because you feel did you start that in in the world, like talking about how that was a concern of yours? And because I know you, when you talked about a long poem, you said, "Well, then you need the structure mm-hmm. in some ways to add, like, to support the length of a, like a book length poem." Or, mm-hmm. um, but then I was also wondering, being at Brown, if the, and that that writing uh, program or place seems to have. Like the experimental as part of its Mm -hmm. uh, a calling card of sorts. So is that uh, well? I think what am I saying? No, right. (laughs) Form was kind of a belated concern for me, actually. Um, And I mean, I just learned everything very slowly. It's almost like I realized what I was learning almost after the fact. you know, I might be developing a few more strategies or techniques, um, cultivating a few more devices, starting to, you know, play around with things more before I realized, oh, I really am starting to become preoccupied with with form and what it can do and, and, um, and what a significant value it is in this particular art form especially. Um, so I think it was, had to do with moving, you know, with just geographical shifts that um, in Arkansas I was concerned with the language and with maybe with cadence, um, not totally self-consciously, but to some degree with cadence. Uh, but then I moved to San Francisco, and uh, the time I moved to San Francisco, one, I was moving from a very rural environment to a very urban environment, and uh, maybe that's the great divide in American poetry, finally, is between urban and rural. And so I was uh, up against people who were much more theoretical um, and were, who were uh, debating lots of issues about poetry, whereas I was not accustomed to those kinds of um, highly defined uh, arguments. And, um, and so I think it was exposure to the poets of San Francisco, San Francisco, particularly the language poets who were quite forceful um, and fairly organized, actually. Um, <laughs> so um, 
They almost sound brutish now, a little like <laughs> the sluggers of the poetry they world. They were tough. <laughs> they were tough. Um, but it, that it gave me something to put my shoulder up against. You know, I felt quite resistant to what they were doing at first, but then I decided I was interested, and I'd just see what if they had anything I could use for my fire. Uh, in, instead of just uh, reacting, um, it took me a while to sort of take it in. But once I started taking it in, it was, became very interesting to me. Um, and I thought that, and then I realized the more I learned about just sort of the landscape of contemporary American poetry, I thought how, wherever you stood in relation to language poetry, um, the gr- glove had been dropped. You did, almost had to respond to it in some some way. Um, some people um, became almost reactionary with relation, you know, in relation to them. I, I just didn't think that was the response I wanted for my own writing. I wanted my own writing to open more and more. And also, I wasn't interested in joining their team, so it wasn't like I felt excluded by them. Um, I didn't, you know, that it was, uh, you know, I liked some of those people, but I didn't feel like I, you know, I really was from a different place um, and had very different assumptions that I brought to the table. But it definitely stimulated me. Mm. Um, So I carried that with me to the East Coast when I moved back east. Um, And there was, to some degree, a kind of... um, interest in the literary experiment at Brown University. It wasn't a, you know, consistent one, but it was definitely sort of there. It was in the air there. And, and what does, in, in regards to your own work, does the literary experiment, does that, is that synonymous with with opening the work outward to you? Is that what that would mean? Well, I don't know what it means to me anymore. I mean, it used to mean to me that I needed to know everything that was going on, (laughs) and I needed to see what I could do about it, you know. But um, after a while, that kind of settles down, and it's uh, I I think I have said that, that, you know, by any means necessary is the only directive I could follow. I mean, Malcolm X said it first, but and he had a slightly different agenda, but I sympathize with that um, you know, that particular directive is I feel I feel very comfortable with that. So usually whatever, you know, if I'm working on a project or if I'm working on a discrete poem, that poem, that poem or that project determines how it goes and it may be very, very accessible, or it may be a little bit more compli- complicated in terms of how you enter it. But for the most part, my in- own intelligence is pretty concrete. And I think even if I, you know, have a few swerves in the road, that it's nevertheless, it's you can stay on the road with it. Uh, it's kind of, which reminds me of, of something that you were were also saying CD about when you were reading a fragment of Sappho and and something that you were like poetry is giving spaces with the fragments they're they're I guess un- unintentional spaces if we only have pieces mm-hmm. of of them remaining but you said that's an idea of like a 
trust comes into it. Like like you're saying, I, you, there might be a few swerves in the road, mm-hmm. but you have like a, a trust in the the poem itself, in your a confidence in your voice. I think, and then also some part of trust um, to the reader, because you're saying that's what one of the. I think are, is is that fair to say that's one of the fuels for poetry that makes it it's almost um, a living thing because the 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 reader must bring something into the spaces of poetry maybe some of the swerves that you mention or these spaces in the even the the fragments of Sappho I have more confidence in the reader than I do in myself I mean I just <laughs> I think the reader will make all kind it, partly because we've been exposed to so much media in our lifetimes that we know how to make cuts and leaps and um, just we can do those things that we do those things with it's almost involuntary Um, so I think you don't have to do everything in a completely plotting way Um, and I you know I think the reader will track it or will lay their own tracks where some track is missing and do you feel like then that's a conscious decision in the rhythm of the writing that because it's it's knowing what to include, knowing what to exclude from the pieces to have that that gift of space or that trust that's because I mean I don't even know if it's conscious like I don't think I've ever thought before oh I'm I'm reading these poems and there's some I've I've thought that there's something expected of me but mm-hmm. I didn't really ever think of it in the way that there was some trust that had been extended to me. So there was. Mm-hmm. A well, I think that that is what animates it is when you have engaged the reader to the extent that they are doing part of that, that it's active reading and not passive. That's what completes the whole circle, you know, <laughs> it's when the reader gets involved in it. It's <laughs> true. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, well, here's a leap for you. Okay. Um, I I I loved that uh, when you were talking in cooling time about um, V, about Mrs. My friend Miss Vitito. Vitito, yes, right. Mrs. Vitito or Miss no. the unappeasable Miss Vitito. That's what's uh, wouldn't you? I'd love someone to say that about me. Oh uh, yeah, she <laughs> definitely was. Uh, she died a few years ago, and uh, she was really my goomba. Um, and I have been trying to work on a, a, a manuscript about her. I really wanted to honor her. It was the honor of my life to know her. So she was an autodidact who just had read more than anyone I'd ever met. And um, the way she digested what she had read um, was so alive. And, you know, just at the those all the literature that she had absorbed, it would just came out of her pores. Um, and maybe she's the one who instilled in me the total romance of that, you know, the, of uh, of making literature that meant that much to somebody, um, and, the and of getting to try to do that, and and the reliance on that, and instead of the worry of what it could could necessarily mean, or um, kind of like a career trajectory but the reliance on that like on making something that could mean this much to someone right because she, she didn't have an easy life by she the, had the, the, a, a terrifically like. difficult life and she also had um she was very ferocious about matters of justice 
Um, and that was another one of the things that sort of got me going in the morning was how pissed off I was about everything. <laughs> you mentioned rage <laughs> a few times. Right. So I, you know, I just identified with those two things about her, just how completely smitten she was with uh, language and also how furious she was about circumstances, for instance, in her hometown. And, and acting on it, too, not just being um, quietly furious in, in the, the walls of her home. That's right. Then she stepped out. She lost everything, but she stepped out. And has it to w- cross a bridge, literally. Right. It's, it is, it's, and you met her when you were 17, so I can only imagine that that was, well, you're saying it was pivotal. Yes, I was, I was young, and she was uh, about 37 then, I think. Uh, maybe maybe 34 and she had seven children um, no money and uh, it was a very 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 racist town that she lived in and uh, after all the things that went down which were just sort of uh, standard procedure for what was happening in eastern Arkansas and in the rest of the Delta at the time in the late 60s she ended up eventually in Um, New York City in Hell's Kitchen and since I ended up in Rhode Island I was able to continue to see her over the years every every once in a while you check it I know you said she was like walking with her in the garden across from her house was like um, being with Cleopatra on the barge right people people recognized her right it was the first time she ever lived any place where she wasn't a freak you know (laughs) amen Uh, to that yeah I mean, yeah, people definitely um, were inspired by her. She was a very impressive person. So are you, CD. Let's, <laughs> let's take a break. We'll be right back. You're listening okay. to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, Living Writers. Why me, Lord, what have I ever done To deserve even one of the blessings I've known Why me, Lord, what did I ever do That was worth love from you And the kindness you've shown Lord, help me, Jesus, I've wasted it, so help me, Jesus, I know what I am. Now that I know that I've needed you, so help me, Jesus, my soul's in your hand. Try me, Lord. If you think there's a way that I can repay what I've taken from you Maybe, Lord, I could show someone else what I've been through myself on my way back to you Lord, help me, Jesus I've wasted it, so help me, Jesus, I know what I am. Now that I know that I've needed 
so help me, Jesus, my soul's in your hand. Jesus, my soul's in your hand. Welcome back. 